Welcome to the PCTA podcast series. My name is Temba Shabalala from the Center for Researching Education and Labor, which is based at the University of the Witwatersrand. What are the skills needs for the public service sector in view of its mandate to deliver public value for citizens? How do we understand the notion of a performing state? And how can the public service sector plan more effectively around its skills needs? Now, these are some of the questions that we will reflect on in this PCTA podcast series, which is aimed at provoking reflection and action on the challenges that confront the public service sector and the role that is played by the PCTA in supporting the development of a capable state. Today, we interview a former public servant who is still devoted and committed to public service, Getzok Gordon, to discuss how do we understand the notion of a performing state. Great that you can join us, Ketso, and thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. You're welcome. So let's get going. I'm just going to ask you four questions. First, starting with, what would a performing state look like? And what would you say is reasonable to expect from the state within the South African context? Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to start pretty high up when you look at any government and, you know, its operations. Mm. And I would say that you want an ethical and principled leadership mm. that has some, even if it's not extensive, but has some moral authority. You know, when you want to lead thousands of people, you must be believable and trustworthy and people must want to do what you are doing. Secondly, we need, you know, politicians who genuinely care about people because that's why we call it public service. It's working in the interests of other people, which means you need to care about them. But more importantly for me is having senior public officials who are chosen on the basis of values, on skills, on experience within a merit-based system. Mm. So that you know that you are building a more professionalized public service from the word go. And without having that as your selection criteria, I think the chances of building something that's going to work are pretty low. And then I think that because it's public money, high levels of transparency and accountability for how that money is spent and ensuring that there's value for money. You know, making sure that whatever you do, you are spending public money as if it was your own. Mm. And a return on investment, not necessarily financial, it could be social, it could be economic, it could be anything. Mm. But having a return on investment mindset, for me, is a critical part of having a performing state. So I would say those are probably the most important things. And having a regulatory environment which encourages people to do things rather than not do things. So I have had a hundred conversations this year yep. where people will say, because of the PFMA, I can't do it. So mm. they're not even looking for a way around it or wanting to change it. It's a blockage. So there's a lot of that in the public service at the moment where people will say, I can't do it. I'm not allowed to do it or some semblance of why I would rather not do something than find a way to do it. So, you know, that's one of the reasons many things don't get done. If you ask me what the performing state looks like, we need to get at least six or seven out of ten on those five things. At the moment, we are probably like a two or three, mm. and I'm being a little bit generous. <laughs> okay. So for me, that's my answer to that question. Thank you so much. So how would you understand the notions of capacity, competency, capability and skills because they're used interchangeably when we talk about the public service sector. 
are they what we are talking about when we're talking about a performing state? So I think that those four words are used interchangeably, but clearly there's some slight nuanced differences. So, you know, when somebody says, do you have the capacity? For me, it generally means, do you have a team? You know, are there warm bodies, which is what the public sector likes to use as an example. So does Sundowns, the soccer team, have the capacity to play soccer? And does Kaiser Chiefs have the capacity to play soccer? Yeah, both of them have a team. So if you are asking, are there players in the team? then capacity is the way to talk about it. Competency is a very different thing because going back to the soccer analogy, the number nine player for Sundowns and the number nine player for Kaiser Chiefs might not have the same level of competency in scoring goals, which means the one team is going to do better than the other. And capability, again, is similar to competency, but it's more about knowledge. Do you have knowledge in the area in which you're working? Mm. Are you capable of doing it? Because for me, that's a key requirement. And, you know, going to an education example, we know for a fact that the majority of grade three to six maths teachers in South Africa cannot teach fractions, which is a core problem, which then tracks throughout your life as a student. And then, you know, you can't do many other things. So capacity, the teacher is there. Competency, they know how to stand in front of the class and tell the kids what to do. Capability, not there, because they can't teach fractions. Mm. So I'm just breaking it down into an example. Yeah. And then skills is sort of a bit of a soft thing, because it's more an art. It's like, can you take what you know, plus your personality, plus your team, and get things done? So skills is harnessing those other three things and overcoming obstacles. For me, the word skills goes automatically with overcoming obstacles. Does the Sundowns team have the skills? to overcome the defense of Kaiser Chief to score the goal. Mm. So that's where skills comes into play, right? Because you might have the competence, mm. but the skill requires you to work with your team, overcome, and you know, be able, despite the odds against you, to deliver. Mm. So skills is probably, in some ways, the most important thing because it brings the other three things together. That's how I see it. Yeah, I hear you. DHAT just recently released an occupational dictionary so do you think something like an occupational dictionary or a public service dictionary where these terms are stated, do you think a uniform understanding across the public service would make enacting policy a bit clearer? You know, if that was the problem, is that people didn't understand the words, then it would be helpful. Unfortunately, in our case, that's not the problem. The problem is not a misunderstanding of words. It's mm. the absence of those things. So knowing what competencies doesn't make you competent, or knowing what skills is doesn't make you skillful. So our problem is not the meanings of the words. It's the absence of the core elements that the public service requires. So, you know, for me, what would be more helpful than a dictionary is reducing what the public sector does. So at the moment, you might not be aware, but we have 770 state-owned enterprises. We have 254 back-to-back municipalities. Anywhere you look on a map in South Africa, there's a municipality. We're the only developing country in the world that has that. About a third of those municipalities will, even if I manage them or you manage them, mm. you know, will not survive because the revenue base just isn't there. They shouldn't have been created. We have nine provinces, each with 10 departments, and then we have a national government with 32 or 33 departments. And we are trying to do thousands of things. Every time there's a problem, we come up with a new regulation. So I can tell you that a national department, on average, fills in 240 reports a year. 
in a municipality, it's higher. Nobody even reads those things. Yeah. So if you went through government and said, let's choose an institution and then ask a very tough question, do we need it? What will happen if tomorrow we closed it down? South African government owns a diamond mine in the Northern Cape. And we're making a loss there for in the last 10 or 15 years. If you add the amount of money that the government has spent on the mine, you could have given each person in that mining community a million rands each. Mm. If you ask me as a taxpayer or you know, somebody who's looking at whether I'm getting value for money, sure. the answer is no. If you shut it down, some people will notice, but you know, it's not going to make a meaningful difference. And I think if you went through government you know, piece by piece, and figure out what are the things we should stop doing. Because we don't have the capacity. Yes. We don't have the capabilities. We don't have the skills. We know that. Now you're taking what is a thin layer of those things and spreading it across so many things. I can tell you that if you just narrowed the focus using the same narrow set of skills, mm. you'll have a better outcome while you are also improving capacity and capability and skills. So we need to do both. I think we need to reduce what the public sector is responsible for and increase the capacity and the skills within the public sector. So if you think about a broad strategy, that's the one I would recommend. Thank you so much. How important are skills and or competence for performing state? So we're basically trying to probe, is it possible to have the right skills, the competent people, but then have an institution still fail? I've given you one example. I'm going to go back to it because I think it's a good example. So you take the best private sector, public sector CEO you can find. Give them the best team you can find, but ask them to run a municipality that doesn't have a revenue base. Hmm. And they will fail. They will fail because the objective conditions don't exist for the you know, existence of that municipality. Different example, if you took one really good person, capable, committed, passionate, has all the skills and the experience, and you put them you know, into a dysfunctional department, what will happen to them you know, over a period of time? It might take six months, it might take a year. But one of two things is going to happen. One, they'll go in there, realize they can't change the place because mm. it's overwhelmingly bad, and then get co-opted and say, you know what, they're going to pay me whether I come to work or not. I don't really have to work hard, fill a few forms, you know, and I stay here till I retire. And you might say, okay, that sounds a bit bad. I can tell you I've got friends who've done that. So it's not far-fetched, you know, theory. It's based on my lived experience. The second is that you maybe you put three or four really competent people into something that's not as broken, but broken. And there, again, two choices. One is their leadership will be welcome because there's enough ethical and principled leadership with some you know, moral expectations of themselves and they want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And then the three or four competent people as a team can maybe reform that organization and begin to improve it. But the macro context in which that department is working is always going to be a bit of a drag because they still have to put up with you know, all the other regulatory and other complexities that you will find in government. Mm. So I think your question is a very valuable one because it's really saying let's design institutions using our ethical leadership and principled approach and values so that we can persuade the right people with the right skills, the right mindset who want to come and work here and be part of a professional team to build this thing. So I think, you know, if the institution is messed up, the chances that the team can be effective are pretty small. So I would say, you know, maybe there'll be one or two rare examples where you can pull that off. The majority of the cases, people will go there, they'll get frustrated. They'll either succumb to the pressure and just, you know, kill time or leave. Mm, mm, mm. 
So we can't change a system from within because it ends up changing us. Exactly, which is, I think, what we've seen, certainly what I've seen with people I know in the public service. Do you think there's room within the public service for learning through mishaps, for learning through mistakes? And how do you see that dynamic playing itself out in the private sector? Is there a difference within the public or the private sector in terms of that? In the public sector, the pressure on people not to make mistakes is so huge. Because, you know, the auditors are on you and the DGs are on you and the ministers are on you and giving you a hard time when you make a mistake. So people are so cautious that if there's any potential of making a mistake, they would rather not do something than do it. So I think there are hundreds of examples of this happening on a sort of daily basis in the public sector. And, you know, part of any broader reform, if you want to improve performance, is to allow people to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Now, good private companies, not all of them, just the good ones, okay. uh, certainly have a culture where you're allowed to make a mistake. So I'll give you my personal story. I used to run a private equity business in Rand Merchant Bank. A young person joined our team. They wanted to do a deal, which I knew made no sense, but they were passionate about it. So I looked at what it might cost us financially, and I allowed them to spend 12 to 18 months doing that deal and watching it fail. But at the end of that 18 months, what I had in my team yes. was a much smarter person who won't make that mistake again, who learned so many things from losing a little bit of money. Now, you might say, Ketso, you're nuts. You're allowing people to lose money. Sure. I was like, yes, that was my return on investment. I lost the money. The return I got was the quality person who is now in my team. I'm giving you a real example because otherwise you end up with, you know, very nebulous ideas. I just want to give it to you in a tangible way. In the venture capital world, which is, you know, where the startups operate, it's all high risk. Wearing a badge which says, I tried and failed, gives you credibility, street cred, compared to somebody who's like, I've thought about many things, but I haven't done anything yet. Which person would you rather work with? The guy who's tried and failed or the guy who's thought a lot and written many policy documents? <laughs> and guidelines and regulations but hasn't done anything sure you know what i'm saying so for me the choice is pretty obvious mm, no i hear you i mean one would argue that the public service is a high stakes environment because the public will want people to account on how their monies were spent but i guess the way that the money has already been spent shows that maybe the stakes aren't that high I think accountability is meant to be there because the state has lost a lot of its moral authority people have stopped caring you know, I know for a fact that I can go to CNA and buy a textbook for 150 bucks, which is on the government purchase list for Department of Basic Education at 450 rand. Hmm. And, you know, I know that for a fact. I mean, I can you know, give you all the information. But you reach the point where you say, what am I going to do about it? I know the state is corrupt. I know somebody is benefiting from that extra 300 bucks going in there. And, you know, I'm going to live my life, hmm. which is a very sad outcome. It's a very sad outcome because actually you want ordinary citizens, the taxpayers, members of the community, civil society, to be raising the stakes on accountability. For sure. But if you look at what's happening mainly in government today, it's pretty low. And then people get really upset because communities then take quite tough measures, burning down things and you know barricades and whatever. And some people ask me, well, why would you destroy what's your own? And I said, it's the only way to get attention because I'm sure those people have gone and said, can we please have a chat because things are not working. Then they would have said, we've written you a memo of our demands. They would have tried many things before they reached the point of sort of some level of desperation, mm. you know, where you say, listen, unless we do these crazy things, nobody's going to pay attention to us. And if you look at the newspapers, the places where the ministers or the MECs or the mayors go, 
is where people have done something to attract their attention. So we've also created, I think, quite a bad culture mm. where you have to do that to get attention rather than knock on the door, present a piece of paper and have a proper chat, Sure. which is the way it should be. You know, that's if you are a accountable, moral authority type government, which, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. So to sum up, for the public service sector to fulfill its mandate, I know you've already mentioned quite a few things, but how would you summarize what needs to be in place in order for the public service to fulfill its mandate? I mean, other than the things we've already talked about, which is, you know, you need principled ethical leadership and the middle layer between that and hiring the best people on a merit-based, experience-based, value-based system is to draw up a set of policies that are evidence-based. So don't do something because it's politically suitable or it's your opinion, but you know that this thing has been tried, has been tested, and it works and makes a positive difference in the quality of life of the people in South Africa. Mm. My example comes back to education. 20 years ago, the grade 3 pass rate for maths was about 33%. 20 years later, it's about 33%. Clearly, there's no evidence-based work being done to say, okay, 33% is bad, we've got to get it to 50 at least. We're not aiming for 100, we're aiming for at least 50. What are the things that we've learned from the way that it is currently working that we should change mm. and then do it differently? So there are many, many examples, unfortunately, where the evidence base for continuing to do certain things just isn't there, but we continue to do it. So, for example, the Minister of Trade and Development recently, if you're producing something, it must be made locally, or a percentage must be made locally. And then recently we had an energy crisis, and then we realized we need to do a lot more alternative energy, wind and solar, etc. And then we realized that one of the things that slows it down, makes it more expensive and inefficient, is this requirement of the local content. And then the president had to make a call and say we're setting aside that particular requirement for this next group of projects. Now, the fact that you had to do that tells you that in the first place, it was a bad idea. But politically, it sounds cool, right? To say, no, no, we're going to keep the jobs here. But our unemployment doesn't get shifted by that. The cost of the things we eventually get out of that process are typically higher. So I can bore you with many more examples. But I think those two tell you that having evidence-based policy that tells you what's going to work and how it's going to work and why it's going to work, Mm -hmm. then you hire the team. Then you put in accountability measures. And then you incentivize those people to perform. Then you have a system that works. It sounds very simple, but, you know, it's a very complex thing to build. So I don't want to make it sound like we can fix this in a couple of years. For sure. I think we've got a long way to go. I think reforming the public sector in South Africa is a sort of five to ten year project. And we can't even start it because we don't have the first thing. We don't have ethical and principled leadership with moral authority. Now, without that, don't start. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so thank you so much. You are um, so welcome. Ezreal, we just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us on this critical issue. 